Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 43 of the Essential x Lapsed, where despite the fact that I'm still wrestling with the migration of Chris's Infinite Earths from Blogger to WordPress and, uh, uh boy, I'm kind of, uh, flustered with the process. It, it's going okay, but, um, a lot more time intensive than I thought it would be, and it's probably going to lead to several hundred hours of um, remastering old material from the past you know, six or so years of the site. I mean, that's a good thing and a bad thing, I suppose. It's a bad thing in that I'm going to have to sink a whole lot of time into it, and it's probably not going to... probably not going to amount to much, but uh, it's a good thing that I get to uh, revisit and maybe reshare some things, and uh, maybe some folks who didn't get around to seeing things the first time around will, uh, will check it out this time. Uh, then again, maybe they won't. But despite all of that, all the headaches, all the frustration, all the uh, trepidation and urges to put my fist through my monitor, I'm still coming at you every single day with uh, some new or newish content. So let's hop into today's book here. It's a part two of two. I'm sure uh, our friend Shirley is uh, very, very pleased to hear that. Now, this is X-Men number 33, had a June 1967 cover date. The story's called Into the Crimson Cosmos, written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Werner Roth, inks John Tartaglioni, letters Sam Rosen, colors, um, hmm, should we just say the Crimson Crayon of Sidorak? Maybe? I don't know. Edit Stanley, cover price 12 cents. And before we get into the book, let's look at the cover here. This is a pretty iconic cover. If you saw it, you'd recognize it. It's one of those. It's one of the uh, handful of covers from you know this era of the uh, original 66 that really stands out. We got the Juggernaut. You know, it's a green cover with the Juggernaut just huge, just looming, uh, taking up most of the cover. And the X-Men are in front of him. And then there's a, a couple of headshots on the uh, right-hand side. And this is, like I said, a fairly iconic cover, but it's also a cover that almost wasn't. Now, you see, the original take on this cover had the villain Zorak, and we will meet him later on this issue. Now, instead of the Juggernaut looming, it was Zorak looming. But the Comics Code Authority nixed it, feeling that the sight of Zorak might be far too frightening for young readers... And, you know, um, it's not often that we thank the Comics Code Authority with, like, hindsight in mind, but I think had the cover prominently featured the demonic Zorak rather than uh, Juggernaut, I I don't know that it would be quite as well remembered. So maybe a happy accident. Maybe the folks at the Code, uh, you know, stumbled into success with this one. Who knows? But uh, it's an interesting cover, to be sure, here. I've seen the pencils of it. I shared it on the uh, social media and on the Facebook group uh, this past weekend. Because, honestly, it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. You know, I'd never heard that there was a an original cover for this that wasn't the iconic one that we all know. So that kind of tells us that there's always something we can learn. So let's get in past the cover here and open up the issue itself. Now, the story opens with the Juggernaut, who had, uh, you know, just beat the holy hell out of the X-Men last issue. He's stomping through the woods on his approach toward Factor 3. And you see, I may have neglected to mention this last time, but Factor 3 is currently hiding out in Europe, okay? And so Mr. Marco is going to have to steal a plane and cross the Atlantic in order to reach his rendezvous. And uh, I'm guessing that he knows how to pilot a plane across an ocean. Maybe that's one of the side effects of uh, Sidorakiness, maybe. I don't know. Now, 
He's met by a pair of soldiers who uh, waste absolutely no time loading and firing a bazooka in his direction. The shell shatters on Juggy's chest and, of course, does not even leave a mark. Kane then does that, like, Hulk smash thing, you know, where he slams both fists on the ground, and this sends, like, a rumbling riptide of Earth just shockwaving toward the soldiers, and so, you know, as they would, they get the hell out of there. They vamoose. Thankfully, though, they do tell us where Juggernaut is headed, uh, Metro Aircraft, which I'm guessing is a subsidiary of uh, Gene's college, Metro College. Scenes shift over to the mansion, where Gene has donned the professor's mental wave amplifier, that goofy thing with the, like, bulb on the front of it, and this is in order to try to get a peek into the professor's head while he lay there comatose. Now, the last time we saw this goofy gimmick was back in X-Men number 20 when we were dealing with Lucifer, and that was Roy Thomas's first issue, if you remember, and maybe our first sign that he was going to be uh, dealing pretty heavily in continuity nuggets. Anyway, the Mento helmet is on, and Jean is able to get kind of a bead on Charles here. She really can't, she really can't reach him, but she can kind of read some of his memories, and uh, through this she is told a story, a story from hundreds of years ago. Now you see, during the, uh, the whole deal with the Juggernaut there last issue, Chuck learned a little bit about the history of Sidorak or some such, and so it's time for us to exposit. Now she sees a mystic from the land Chosan, who has just stumbled across the cursed shrine of Sidorak. Stern Stan lets us know that this fella is actually Yao, the Ancient One, as a young man. Now he enters the sanctuary and discovers the Ruby of the Crimson Bands. And while he doesn't plan on actually touching or taking the thing, you know, lest he become a juggernaut, he doesn't even get all that much time to just look at it, study it, and observe it, because he is attacked by Zorak. And they fight for an entire two panels before Yao somehow forces the baddie into the Crimson Ruby. Now this somehow gives the X-Men the idea that uh, they can do something with the Ruby in order to save the Professor from his coma, I think. Um, also, uh... They might be able to defeat the Juggernaut in this ca- Again, I think. Now, Jean pulls out her X-Men watch to uh, take the Professor's pulse, to which, uh, well, here's the question here. Could this be Chekhov's watch? Yeah, yeah, it totally is. It'll come back around, don't worry. Uh, Beast suggests that uh, they might be able to get some answers if only the Ancient One still lived. And so, the team decides to stand the fallen Cerebro machine up and attempt to use it to track down this non-mutant entity. Snoopy Stan reminds us that uh, the X-Men had installed a multi-frequency booster to Cerebro back in issue 27. I'm not sure that that would make it track non-mutants, but, I mean, let's be honest, uh, Cerebro is kind of all over the place at this point. It it picks up whatever it needs to pick up for the story to take place. Anyway, the X-Men rig up like a, a pulley and hoist thing to stand Cerebro back up, and then they begin their search. And it doesn't take long for their quarry to arrive. It's literally like a panel and a half later. Uh, now, the quarry is in the form of an astral projection of Doctor Strange. Now, Iceman questions if this is actually the guy they're looking for, to which Strange is like, hey, you don't believe me? I'll leave. You know, I got better things to do. Uh, his body's actually currently on trial at Stonehenge, and he really doesn't have any time or patience to be doubted by Kid Cool here. Scott then mentions that this is about Sidorak, and then chats a bit about the Juggernaut, to which Strange says that he can send two of them into the Ruby to do whatever the hell it is that they are planning on doing. Scott says he'll go as leader, and for his second, he chooses Gene. 
Now, this gives us a panel where he questions whether he picked her because she'd be the best partner or simply because he's got the raging hot pants. Now, Gene believes it to be the latter and is very, very pleased. Pleased as punch to be accompanying Scott. Strange gives them the, uh, like, open sesame phrase to get into the gym. And, oh, it's worth noting that our heroes got to get in and out of this thing within an hour, otherwise they'll be stuck for all eternity. Or something. Strange zaps Scott and Gene away before slinking back to Stonehenge. Bobby, Hank, and Warren are instructed to do whatever they can to delay the juggernaut from getting wherever it is that he's, you know, going. Next we know, Scott and Gene are rematerializing in the demilitarized zone in Korea, right before the mountain under which lay the Temple of Sidorak. Scott takes to blasting his way into the Earth Mass, but then some Korean soldiers start to saunter on up. Gene then yoinks a keystone from some of the rubble, which causes a great big landslide. Now the tumbling rocks wind up setting off a bunch of landmines, which causes the soldiers to hightail it away, fearing the wrath of Sidorak. Which is pretty convenient. Now, after some more digging, our pair finally make it through to an opening and to the altar of Sidorak. Scott and Jean use the open sesame phrase, which is, <clears throat> By dread Dormammu's deadly twin, by Hoggoth's hoary strands, let these two now descend within the ruby of crimson bands. And bada-bing, bada-boom, they're yoinked on in, and, uh, I mean, hell, maybe, maybe after saying it, I am too, I, I can't tell. Once inside, they are immediately confronted by Zorak, who now calls himself the Outcast. Let's head back to the real world, where the Juggernaut continues stomping his way toward Metro Aircraft. The remaining X-Men are hot on his trail in the X-Copter. Kane bursts through the, you know, wildly high-security chain-link fence that protects the facility, and uh, sends the security detail running in, in the other direction. So, uh, thanks, guys. Uh, the X-Men land, and then proceed to do something pretty badass. You know, they leave the chopper running, so like the propeller, the blade is just still whirring, you know? Then they tip it over so it would like in theory, like chop the juggernaut up into teeny tiny Sidorakian pieces. Now that'd be all well and good, but since he's the juggernaut, and, and this is a code-approved book, thanks to the cover change, it doesn't quite work out for our heroes. And I tell you, A for effort, and A for uh, bloodthirst as well. Jugs proceeds to tear up the chopper and proceeds to chuck big old chunks of it at the fellas. From here, we head back into the crimson doldrums of Sidorak. Now, Zorak, the outcast, hurls the uh, scarlet circles of doom at Scott and Jean, and they, they kind of look like uh, those licorice pinwheels. You know, like the red laces of licorice that are rolled up to look like discs, and like you unroll them as you eat them? That's exactly what these things are. I mean, there's no bones about it. Anyway, you know, he chucks them, they begin to unroll and wrap themselves around Scott and Jean until Jean TKs them away and then fires them back at Zorak. Of course, it's not going to be quite that easy to take him out, though. The outcast vanishes in a puff of smoke, and then even more red licorice coils appear and start wrapping up our heroes. It's almost like they realize that the issue came up a page short or something, because this whole scene feels like it's uh, unnecessary. Maybe it's just deja vu, as uh, Jean and the French would call it, uh, which is to say that Jean gives us an explanation as to what deja vu is here, which is adorable, and makes me wonder if deja vu was just like an understood term back in 1967 or something that actually needed to be explained. I mean, I wasn't around back then. Anyway, I guess the gimmick here is that uh, the scene will keep playing out the same way over and over again, like uh, Groundhog Day, only boring. Now, it's here 
where Jean has an idea, and it has to do with Chekhov's watch. You see, inside the crimson wherever the hell, time doesn't exist. But the presence of a watch kind of throws a wrench into that train of thought, right? I guess we can play along. Now, Jean tosses the watch at Zorak, who freaks out and gives up immediately. He offers the ruby to the X-Men, if only they'd, like, leave him alone. Just then, all the years that Zorak's been stuck in the Crimson Limbo catch up to him. He withers, ages, and probably dies. I don't know, you can't tell. Scott and Jean then lunge toward freedom and the ruby. Once it's in hand, uh, Scott transforms into a juggernaut. Well, no, no, that actually doesn't happen. Uh, This is apparently the prototype gem, whatever that means. Uh, Now, actually, once it's in hand, Scott and Jean somehow rematerialize at Professor X's bedside. They don't stick around long, though, because they hop right into an X-Jet and fly off the Metro aircraft so they could join the fight against the Juggernaut. Now, once they're gone, some shadowy individuals show up beside Xavier's bed. So, what's this all about, huh? Hmm. Now, let's go to the airfield, where Kane has chased Iceman, Angel, and the Beast into a wind tunnel. Now, they turn on the giant fan to slow Kane's approach, to which Kane just stops resisting and flies backwards through a wall. Then the boys attack. Beast hits Kane with a dropkick. Warren hits him with a pole that he got from somewhere. And Bobby engages in Iceman Maneuver A, which is, you know, encasing the baddie in ice, which holds him for less than one entire panel. Scott and Jean then arrive with the sacred ruby of Sidorak prototype. Um, Now, Psyche hoists it over his head, which seemingly begins to depower the Juggernaut. And so, panicking, Kane grabs the thing. And he vanishes to, um, I don't know, somewhere in the Crimson Cosmos. I think the next time we'll be discussing Juggernaut will be somewhere around episode 75 of this show, because we'll be covering Doctor Strange number 182, that has a September 1969 cover date, so we got that looming in, our, in the sort of kind of distant future, I suppose. Now, we wrap up the issue with the X-Men arriving back at the mansion, only to discover that the Professor has been kidnapped. Now, you might think that we're headed, like, right into the Factor 3 story, and, you know, we're hitting the ground running, but no. <laughs> no, next time out, we're heading to the center of the Earth to deal with Tyrannus and the Mole Man. So, uh, Factor 3... We'll have to wait. So, what did we think about this uh, part two of the second Juggernaut saga? It's weird. Um, With the Juggernaut, I got this odd kind of dissonance. Um, I really like the character. I always kind of get excited when I see him. But all the Sidorakian trappings do absolutely nothing for me. It probably makes no sense to say that I like the character. I just don't like, you know, everything about the character. (laughs) Everything that makes the character who he is. But the, the Crimson Cosmos, all that uh, stuff just really doesn't do it for me. And I don't feel like that uh, necessarily works for a Silver Age X-Men story. Uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of that in any age of uh, X-Men stories, but you can kind of see it track a bit better in uh, future decades of X-Men books here. I mean, we have magic with Limbo and all sorts of astral plane stuff that, you know, is is more than... Just a character leaving their body behind and, and walking to a, a location. <laughs> it's a little bit deeper than that uh, nowadays and, uh, you know, into the bronze and uh, more modern age. Here, though, eh, really kind of doesn't do a whole heck of a lot for me. You know, I feel like, and this is not an indictment on just the X-Men books, it's just uh, Silver Age books altogether. One of the 
One of the things that makes makes Silver Age books a little bit of a slog for me, even even now where we're turning uh, a fake-ass analytical eye toward them, a lot of build-up for not a lot of payoff. Uh, I mean, of course, the you know the mission is accomplished uh, most times, and it facilitates the story continuing or us leaving that story to go on to another one. But I feel like we just have like so much build-up, and then like a one-page payoff. And of course, this isn't the first time we've seen that. It will not be the last time we see that. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Tyrannus and Mole Man story uh, next episode is going to be just like that. So, I don't know. The the formula, the Silver Age formula is... Well, I mean, it is what it is, right? Um, it, it is what it needs to be. But I think after, you know, reading so many of them in a row, uh, the seams begin to show. You know, you can kind of tell where they're going, and... It's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just a, a hindsight thing, right? We can look back on these stories and be like, ah, yeah, I see where this is going. <laughs> and uh, especially if you know that it's not going to be a multi-part story, or if you know you're in the last part, and you see that the pages are withering away, and you only have a few left to go, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. All that said, I'm still looking forward to seeing Factor 3 happen, <laughs> finally. Uh, it's been a really slow burn, and as I mentioned a few times before, I don't remember much, if anything, about uh, Factor 3, who they are, what they do. So um, it's something I'm really looking forward to uh, revisiting and actually, you know, committing it to memory this go-round. Unfortunately, it is a slow burn, and we're going to be taking another issue off before we get back to it, and I'm not even sure if we're going to get back to it the issue after that. So, uh... I guess we're just going to play it by ear, and uh, we will continue on our merry mutant way. Overall, I feel like this second Juggernaut arc uh, was not as strong as the first one. The first one packed a certain punch, had uh, a whole lot of... It was more of a horror story than a mystical one, and I, I guess I have more of, a, uh, more of an appetite for the horror than the mystic. Of course, the first time around, it had much more to do with explaining what the looming threat was that would be revealed as a juggernaut. Not really a trick you can do more than once. You can't introduce a character uh, more than one time and hope for the same sort of uh, reaction, same sort of tension, the same sort of dramatic reveal. Still, though, this was worlds better than Mad Merlin. It was better than the Locust, better than the Magia, better than the Super Adaptoid. So, um, yeah, this was all right. And if you haven't read it before, I'd say it's certainly worth, at the very least, a flip-through. Also, it's worth noting that uh, Werner Roth's pencils are really starting to win me over. Uh, when he took over, I, I liked him immediately, mostly because he was uh, a little bit different than Kirby. You know, I had gotten accustomed to the Kirby look, and as I talked a lot about early in the show, uh, with uh, Kirby's art, I kind of run hot and cold. So seeing someone like a Werner Roth pop in, it was uh, refreshing. Then we got to a point where Roth was including, like, two or three full-page spreads in every issue, and, uh, well, they, uh, weren't necessarily my favorites, so I kind of, uh, I kind of waxed and waned on, uh, on Ol' Werner, and I think I've come back around now, really digging the, uh, look here. But I think that's all I have to say about this issue, uh, but that's not the end of the book. We've got a few more segments to go. Let's hop into the Mutant Mailbox, where we have a bunch of letters written by a bunch of first-timers. As you guys know, I am keeping <laughs> a database of all the letter hacks here for whatever stupid reason that I'm doing that. Um, these are all first-timers. So let's kick it off here with Michael in Milwaukee. 
Now, he really, really loved issue number 30, and he thought bringing back Mad Merlin as the warlock was sheer magnificence. Hmm. He wants to see Merlin team up with Magneto in the future, and uh, Stan talks a little bit about uh, team-ups here. It's a very, uh, <laughs> a very convenient letter to start this one off. He says that uh, maybe the X-Men and the Avengers might be hooking up for a bit in the not-so-distant future. And, uh, in fact, they will be. And we'll kick off that storyline around episode 53 or so of the show. So in 10 episodes' time, we'll be, uh, we'll be dealing with the Avengers and the X-Men and uh, maybe even featuring the return of a, uh, of a villain who's been gone for a minute or two. Hmm. Next up, we got Patrick in Rhode Island. Now, he's happy that the Mimic is back to being a human, but isn't happy that they took his powers away. Huh? I mean, it's one or the other, right? (laughs) You can't be both. Anyway, Pat then complains about a bunch of Marvel stuff here. He doesn't like that the angel is injured and can't fly. He doesn't like that they broke Spidey's arm, and he doesn't like seeing the Hulk made public enemy number one again. He also wants to see one of the X-Men marry Jean, but doesn't seem to care which one. He does not want to see Cyclops depowered, but he wants to see him gain better control over his powers. Well, in his reply, Stan begins to get a little bit salty. Now, he suggests changing the Merry Marvel Marching Society to the Merry Marvel Malcontent Society, so, uh, zing. Next up, Joe in Jersey. He loved the ending to the saga of the Mimic, because he thought Cal Rankin was pretty boring. He then asks Stan to either add Cal or the Super Adaptoid to the Avengers. Uh, that's, those are both lousy ideas, uh, and I thought Cal Rankin was boring, so um, I don't know. Uh, he thinks that Hank and Bobby suck, and he'd like to see Iceman become more mature. Stan reminds Joe that Bobby just had a birthday like an issue or two ago, and also he warns that uh, you're only young once, so why should they rush it? Next up, and this is a fun one, we got Chester in Leicester. Hmm. Now, Chester enjoyed seeing the Warlock in issue number 30. Uh, He then goes on to correct a letter hack who wrote in that issue uh, in the mutant mailbox, who questioned the Puppet Master returning to his flesh-and-blood form. Now, Chester reminds us that in the pages of Tales to Astonish number something or another that happened. (laughs) Um, Now, I vaguely remember a letter hack asking a question about how the Puppet Master keeps coming back to life, but... Admittedly, I don't think I bothered to commit it to my long-term memory. Now, Chester also cites how old PM mastered yoga, or yogi, and was able to fake his own death in Fantastic Four number 8, to which Rascally Roy thanks Chester for the assist in shutting down a complaint aimed at his work. Bought in Virginia. Now, he's been a comic collector for five years and considers Marvel to be his favorite. And Thor and Spider-Man are the tops to him, but the X-Men are quickly gaining. Now, he really enjoys Werner Roth's work on the book and hopes he doesn't go anywhere, uh, citing how the Hulk seems to change artists like every six pages. Um, He hopes that the Mimic gets his powers back again. Uh, Now, Stan replies by saying he's been getting a ton of requests, probably a trillion letters, to bring back not only the Mimic, but also the Banshee, the Super Adaptoid, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. He suggests that there uh, might just be an issue upcoming where the X-Men are too busy to tackle a threat, and it'll be up to these five characters to step in and, uh, you know, do the thing. And I think we just witnessed the original pitch to Giant Size X-Men number one. Huh. Our last letter comes to us from Horace in Pennsylvania, and he revisits the controversy regarding the continuing story phenomenon. 
So, uh, gee, thanks for keeping this subject going, Shirley. Um, now, if you're unaware, there's been an on-and-off brewing of discussion in these pages regarding the multi-part story versus the done-in-ones. I won't go into the nitty-gritty of spotty newsstand distribution, just know that it wasn't always easy to follow your favorite titles. Now, one of the biggest complainers is a prolific letter hack named Shirley, who pretty much hates everything Marvel does, but continues to buy the books and continues to engage in letter writing. Anyway, back to Horace, he is for the continuing story. He claims that 99 times out of 100, the stories deserve the extra pages they get. He then quotes Little Orphan Annie, for some reason, and wraps up. Now, Stan says he's waiting for someone, <clears throat> Shirley, to write in to complain that the issue they just read was absolutely perfect. I think if we could take one lesson away from this, it's a, uh, don't be a Shirley, just don't. Uh, next up, the Bullpen Bulletins, also known as <clears throat> More Mixed Up Madness from Marvel's Mighty Masters of Mysticism, Magnificence, and Misinformation. Item. You know how Marvel had those TV specials not too long ago on syndicated stations? Stan, he didn't mention it all that often, so you may not know. It might have come and gone and you didn't notice it. Well, now, Stan informs us that both Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four will be getting fully animated 30-minute specials on ABC TV. Item. Stan recently held court with Al Wallace of Autumn's Press in the UK. Now, Autumn's publishes the top three weekly comics mags in the kingdom. They're called Smash, Wham, and Pal. Now, Stan announces that Autumns will start releasing Marvel works in the UK, and so he thanks Al and all of Marvel's British boosters. Item. You all know about no prizes, right? Well, it's here where Stan makes them official. You will soon be able to prove that you won a no prize. So what's a no prize look like? Well, stay tuned, pussycat. Item. John Severin is returning to the bullpen to do something non-Shield related, because Jim Steranko will be doing all the Shield stuff. Dick Ayers will be taking on Ghost Rider, and that's the Western version, of course. Gary Friedrich is now writing Sergeant Fury in his Howling Whatchamacallums, replacing Rascally Roy, who's just crazy busy at this point. Uh, Roy is writing Submariner, X-Men, and The Avengers. Stan refuses to let us forget that he's also writing some books, and he refers to his books as The Easy Ones. And they are Spider-Man, Thor, Fantastic Four, and Daredevil. Stan's soapbox is next, uh, not to be confused with, uh, you know, the rest of the bullpen bulletins page. Here he includes a letter written in by Mark Avanier of Los Angeles. I, hmm, I, I think we might have heard of that guy. Anyway, Mark is writing in to express his concerns about the MMMS and how it's turned into disorganized chaos. And so Mark suggests a system in which there'll be officers and levels of membership just to keep everything straight. And he goes through them as such. You can be an RFO, a real frantic one, and this is the rank you're assigned the first time you buy a Marvel mag. Next is the QNS, the Quite Enough Sayer. You raise to this level when you have your first letter published. A TB is a true believer, and that's a recipient of a no prize, and then the no prize scales as such here. Each additional no prize, you raise your rank. So for one, you're a TB. Two, JHC, a junior howling commando. Three, resident hulk, RH. Four, an AAT, an associate's assistant thing. Finally, you're an MM, a Marvelite Maximus. Now, Mark calls this the penultimate level, which... You know, penultimate's one of those words that I see misused quite a bit. And that's coming from me, which is 
certainly saying something. From here, we got the DDD, Definitely Dizzy Doodlers. All Marvel artists have this rank. The IWP, Indefatigable Word Placers, the Cymex and the Rosens of the world. Finally, we have the MEO, Marvel's Earthbound Odin. Now, this is a title reserved for Smile and Stan. Uh, the writers don't get a, don't get a uh, rank, and um, the colorists don't even get a credit, so <laughs> who would even know? Uh, Stan really digs this letter, and he likes the idea, and he wants to get it rolling. Uh-huh. I wonder if uh, I wonder if maybe we can figure out a fake ass officer scale. I'm open to any and all ideas. Finally, we hit the wrap up, and uh, Stan talks a little bit about the king size specials. They're still coming, and Stan would have chatted about them a lot more here, but he's run out of room. So till next time, front faces. Let's pop over to the right hand portion of this page to the mighty, mighty Marvel checklist. Let's see, we got Fantastic Four number sixty four, which features the FF versus. The Sentry. Not that Sentry. Spider-Man number 50, you may have heard of this one, Spider-Man No More. Avengers 41 has the Avengers vs. Dragon Man. Daredevil number 29 has Daredevil Unmasked. (gasps) Again! (gasps) For the first time. Thor 141, The Mobster and the Monster. Strange Tales 158, Nick Fury vs. Hydra. Again. Doc Strange also meets the Living Tribunal. Suspense number 91, a new villain and invention for Iron Man. And Cap vs. the Red Skull, again. Tales to Astonish 93, Namor vs. It the Silent One, still. And Hulk vs. Silver Surfer. Sergeant Fury number 43 has the Howlers vs. Rommel the Desert Fox. Then it's Reprint-O-Rama with the ninth issues of Marvel Collector's Items Classics, Fantasy Masterpieces, and Marvel Tales. Now, we don't have an MMMS section this time out. Uh, instead, the bottom inch and a half of the bullpen page is dedicated to a teaser for something called Not Brand Ugh. It has the tagline, who says a comic book has to be good? So um, I guess we have that to look forward to in the not-too-distant future. Maybe we'll take a look at a, an issue or two of that just to get a little bit of a feel for it. And, hey, maybe there'll be some X stuff in there that's uh, at least worth, you know, looking at. Now, across the way, we've got our regular MMMS uh, order forms with uh, T-shirts, posters, stationery, the membership card, stuff like that. But this time they include buttons, Marvel buttons here. You get five for a dollar, and uh, they say the following. Nuff said, brand ich, hang loose, sheesh, and face front. So um, I'm with you with three of those. Nuff said, that's a, definitely a standism. Brand ich, for sure. Face front also, but I, I didn't know Stan was known for saying hang loose or sheesh. Maybe I should start my own buttons for the show here. I can have buttons that say, like, chair and hello and grocery store. You know, those things that you know that I say all the time. Anyway, that will do it for the issue today. And uh, we do have one short missive in the mailbag here, and it's from our good friend Billy D. Now discussing issue 32, he says, Hey, Chris, great episode. I'm not sure who's the bigger goon in the letters column, Stanley or Carl. One guy's a lunatic and the other's a perv. <laughs> Anyways, always glad to hear your thoughts on the funny books. Cheers. Now, for those of you who might have missed uh, episode 42, where we discussed issue 32, uh, Carl wrote in, Uh, Carl in Ontario, he wrote in and made sure to tell Stan that he was writing him from bed. And um, all he wanted to do was talk about uh, the romance in the Marvel Universe while writing in from bed and making sure that we know 
that he's in bed writing it. It was a <laughs> very, very bizarre letter. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Billy. It's always great to hear from you. And uh, while on the subject, I'm going to be appearing on uh, one of Billy D's podcasts not too long from now, uh, talking about a very weird issue of Action Comics from the Silver Age. So I'm very much looking forward to that, and I will make sure to keep you all in the loop as it uh, becomes a thing. From here, let's hop over to the shout-outs and thank some folks who were kind enough to spread the word about the show and uh, and share some stuff out here. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Jeremiah, Walt Neeland, Joe Crawford, Dave Schultz, Billy D, Jacob Jones, Jason Colby, and Brian Ingram. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Jeremiah, Evan Bevins, Billy D, and Walt Neeland. Let's keep the thank you train coming by thanking the patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. Thank you all so much for all your support and all the uh, kindness that you've shown me. It really, really does mean a lot. Now, if there's anyone out there who'd like to get a hold of me for any reason at all, you could find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at... 623-396-JERK For blog posts and show notes, you can go to the all-new, all-different, still very ugly, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com uh, We're over at WordPress now instead of Blogger, and uh, I think all of the articles have populated, but as I alluded to earlier, that is just the start of it. So um, I suppose watch that space. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, also you can find us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. We would love to see you there. Of course, the complete audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapsed. A lot of exclusive content, some first-run content. Soon to be a lot more content just as soon as I get past this WordPress uh, hurdle and I can spend a little bit more of my uh, free time not wanting to bash my head into a monitor and instead actually do some creating. So uh, fingers crossed that's very, very soon. Anyway, that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. It really does mean a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.